0: The reading of the scriptures from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 to 3. So, uh, hear the word of the Lord through the prophet Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, they may, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. It's somewhat
1: amusing to me that uh, we live in a culture that uh, is infatuated with uh, benefits in the workplace, retirement benefits, health benefits, benefits. Uh, sick days, uh, on and on. I mean, I'm sure you know the litany, but it's also intriguing to me, uh, sadly, that uh, uh, politicians have uh, made promises that uh, uh, they're going to have a very difficult time fulfilling. Uh, so that when we come to the benefits and entitlements that come to us from heaven, uh, there is uh, there's no such shortfall And uh, they are truly engaging, and that is really our text this morning, the benefits that accrue to us uh, on uh, the basis of uh, Christ, uh, who is the subject of our text this morning. Uh, The text begins with what I think is the servant. Uh, Isaiah has four very prominent servant songs. They're not the only texts in Isaiah that speak of Christ, but certainly they are poetry that speak of Christ, Uh, This is another text, uh, albeit uh, absent the poetry. Uh, First part of uh, the first verse begins with the servant and then transitions with his identity to his mission. So the identity of uh, the servant and then, uh, more importantly to us, the mission of the servant who will gather for us unimaginable benefits and entitlements that will last throughout all time. Uh, The servant, in my own mind, is none other than uh, the Messiah. Uh, There is a hint from this in the text itself. Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because He has anointed me. Uh, The text is an allusion to the prophet himself. Uh, go all the way back to Isaiah chapter 11 in verses 1 and 2. We have the promise of of the coming of the Spirit. Uh, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. So Isaiah is simply repairing to his own literature, and uh, we find, uh, as you know, uh, the very same concept and Uh, Isaiah chapter 42, in the first verse, Behold, My servant whom I uphold, My chosen one in whom My soul delights, I have put My spirit upon him. Uh, The New Testament uh, seals the identity of who the servant is. The Messiah, of course, is none other than Christ. Uh, And we know that because uh, Luke alludes to Isaiah in the baptism and anointing of Jesus at the beginning of His public ministry. Uh, Turn in your New Testament to the third chapter of uh, the Gospel of Luke. Because the illusion, again, is going to seal the identity of the Servant and the Messiah to be none other than the Lord Christ, our Savior, Jesus, uh, the only Redeemer. Uh, Luke chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Now it came about that, pardon me, he added this also to them all and he locked John up in prison. Now it came about uh, that when all the people were baptized, that Jesus also was baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came out of heaven. Thou art my beloved Son, and thee I am well pleased. So the coming of the Spirit upon Christ at His baptism uh, is, I think, uh, powerful marker that Luke is identifying the Messiah uh, to be the Lord Jesus in the presence of the Spirit is just such a marker. Now, the Spirit coming upon the Son at the outset of his public ministry. Uh, it's also, I think, very instructive uh, that Luke is also alluding to Psalm 2, verse 7. Uh, Thou art my Son, for today I have begotten the Uh, It's interesting because the psalm is indirectly messianic. It contains a very powerful coronation formula marking for us Christ as uh, King Messiah. Uh, So Luke identifies Jesus as the messianic king. Uh, For us, it's also instructive that to anoint, the verb to anoint is that from which we have the noun Messiah or the Hebrew Mashiach. So Christ is the anointed one. And the Father anoints him with the Spirit at the outside of his ministry in fulfillment, this great prophecy of Isaiah 61. Reminding us, of course, that here's the one who can promise benefits and pay them all. His bank will never run out because of who he is. Uh, No budgetary shortfalls with King Messiah. Uh, It is uh, a statement, of course, of commissioning from which uh, follows his infinite, which follows, pardon me, his missions. Uh, the mission, latter part of uh, first verse, down through the third verse. So we have the identity of Messiah, the Lord Christ, and then his mission statement uh, in the next verses. And the missions are found in seven infinitives that tell us what he's going to do. Uh, and what follows the, infiniti- the, the uh, infinitives are the beneficiaries of what he's going to do. And I would simply commend you to the reality that they are the entitlements that come to all Christians uh, and that his benefits uh, will never run out. Uh, He's able to pay in full because of who he is. Uh, So again, mission statement followed by the benefactors. Uh, What's instructive, I think, by way of application in this text? is that the benefits are Trinitarian. They come to us from the Father who appoints the Son and then who dispatches the Spirit of God to rest upon the Son and empower Him in His ministry. That essential to the Christian faith is that we serve the one true God that comes to us in three identical and co-equal persons. Father, Son, and Spirit. The mission statements speak to us in the reality that Messiah will affect the end time restoration. As you know, we're in that section, the prophecy of Isaiah, uh, which he is speaking to the children of Israel in captivity uh, that God will act again and affect an end time restoration and an end time exodus. Uh, In my own mind, they all collapse upon Christ uh, because uh, Israel in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah never fulfilled. Uh, these great promises, uh, setting up the marker that Christ will come and fulfill them all and uh, shower His entitlements uh, and benefits upon those who believe in Him. Uh, The purpose of the anointing is sevenfold. Uh, Let's begin with the first. The first is to bring the good news to the afflicted. Uh, The Greek translation of the Old Testament, which I think is the most powerful of all of the versions, that used the cognate verb, which can also be translated to evangelize. So, Lord King Messiah is going to come as the evangel, and he's going to preach the gospel of the good news of all that he's going to accomplish for his people. Uh, so that uh, Messiah is giving to us in this text, in his mission statement, uh, the very content of the gospel in a very expansive form. Uh, the word is also used of the good news of a successful military battle. It's quite remarkable that Messiah fights the greatest battle of all times for us. He binds Satan. He plunders his kingdom. He sets us free so that we might be his sons forever and full heirs of all of the promises of God. Secondly, he is sent by God as a divine emissary to bind up the brokenhearted. Uh, we all go through life. Yeah, we all get our hearts broken, different venues, whatever it might be. Uh, very painful sometimes, very intense. We lose people that we deeply love. Relationships are broken. Our hearts get broken. Christ comes to bind them up. Uh, it's quite instructive to me that it uh, seemed like every time I read the daily newspaper, uh, we, we, we read of the horrors of the opioid uh, epidemic uh, bracing our country. Uh, I have this uh, anecdotal theory in my own mind that people aren't taking those opioids to have a good time. Uh, they're taking those opioids because they're in a lot of pain. They're trying to dull the pain of life. And life can be very painful sometimes. So here's a remarkable promise of a great benefit that Christ showers upon his people. Yeah, we get our hearts broken. We don't escape the effects of the fall in life, but he binds up our hearts and keeps us for himself, that we know that there is a positive outcome, and we don't seek solutions that are contrary to his will because he will fix our hearts. I understand it takes patient waiting, but when you know who the object of your hope is, uh, namely King Messiah, and that he will bind up your hearts so you can endure whatever he brings your way. Thirdly, he proclaims liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. Uh, in my own mind, this is an allusion uh, to uh, the law book of uh, the book of Leviticus. Uh, Leviticus chapter 25 and verse 10. Uh, it's a promise of one of the great feasts in the Old Testament. And what happens in uh, the day of Jubilee, Leviticus 25 uh, and verse 10. Uh, and I think the allusion is cemented for me by the word, the presence of the word liberty. Liberty. You shall thus consecrate the 50th year, and proclaim a release the new American standard has. It's better translated, I think, liberty through the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a Jubilee for you, and each of you shall return to his own property and each of you shall return to his family. Context again, quite simply, the year of Jubilee, when all of the slaves, all of the children of Israel who because of debt had pledged their service to someone else until that debt is repaid. Year of Jubilee, regardless of whether the debt is repaid or not, they go free. What a great promise of the law of God. I mean, how can you but read the daily newspaper and read about this incredible debt crisis? People can't pay their college loans or this loan or that loan or whatever it is. Here was a provision in the law of God that really is ultimately messianic because it speaks to the reality that we have this great, incredible burden of debt, but Christ in the year of jubilee will set us free. That, that really is one of the greatest of the benefits of the gospel of Christ. Set free that slaves could return. It's a great reminder, you wouldn't, uh, you know, if you were a loaner, if you loaned money, you wouldn't loan money on the 49th year, would you? (laughs) Because you knew on the 50th year, uh, you'd be taken advantage of. Uh, But none of that touches the majesty of Christ. as well if you pledged your land. You could never sell your land as the children of Israel. You never sell it. it, always belonged to you. But again, sometimes you fall in hard times, so you pledge your, your loan to, I don't know, send your son to the university, your daughter uh, to whatever. You pledge, you pledge your land, and so if someone comes in and becomes a tenement farmer using your land. Year of Jubilee, it reverts to the original owner. It all goes back. Slaves are fr- set free and the land returns to its original owner. The year of Jubilee. Freedom is the point. The liberty. And so Christ again, the King Messiah, uh, is going to affect liberty for all of his sons and daughters. Uh, The year of Jubilee was every 50 years or seven sabbatical cycles plus one year. And again, you can imagine the celebration engendered by such a law. Uh, That one day you would be set free. One day you could return to your land. Promise. I don't know whether you know this or not, but I recognized this a number of years ago. I was in Philadelphia, went to stand before the Liberty Bell. There's an inscription on the Liberty Bell that's very instructive. You know what it is? Leviticus chapter 25 and verse 10. Our political founders knew the very lifeblood of politically what they were trying to accomplish in freedom from slavery and freedom from tyranny, freedom from taxation. And so they quote the Bible on the Liberty Bell. Of course, they were looking for political liberty, but for us it breaks all the greatest of, of the benefits and entitlements of freedom and liberty from sin. Though we are guilty, we are set free that every day for us as Christians is a year of jubilee. I suspect at some point ACLU is going to file a lawsuit against the federal government to erase Leviticus 25 verse 10 off the Liberty Bell. I mean, they have so much to do with their time, of course. Uh, but, but it is a reminder That uh, we try to preserve liberty, but only Christ can truly affect it and make it happen. Greatest of all benefits. Uh, Every year, people trying to get into America because they want a measure of freedom. You and I have the fullness of the reality of it in Jesus Christ. The uh, Greek translation uh, also adds to this text, recovery of sight to the blind that we can see because of Christ. Uh, The point is that Messiah is the fulfillment of the year of Jubilee, engaging spiritual freedom and an internal inheritance. Uh, It's my own conviction that all the land promises of the Old Testament uh, are merely foreshadowing eternity. Uh, That as the sons of God, can never be taken from us. Well, all this is well and good. Uh, we we have a measure of the mission of Messiah, what he's going to accomplish, uh, great benefits of freedom and liberty, uh, reversing all the effects of the fall. It's going to enable us to see, uh, according to the Greek translation, uh, going to give us an eternal home that can never be taken from us. Uh, when when is all this started? I bring before you. Uh, and what I'm going to suggest is that the benefits that accrue to us based upon the mission of King Messiah, the Lord Jesus, uh, accrue to us now. Now, in the Gospel. Let's see if I can't document this for us. At the outset of Christ's public ministry, he cites Isaiah chapter 61 verses 1 and 2. If you have your New Testament, Luke chapter 4 is this incredible encounter that Jesus takes the mantle, if you will, of Isaiah chapter 61 and wraps it around Himself. Uh, Luke chapter 4. The context is just after the 40 days of testing in the wilderness, which identifies Him as the new Israel. Uh, He is also very instructive, identified with the Spirit. Luke chapter 4, verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led about by the Spirit in the wilderness. By the way, there's a great application here. I know people go through wilderness periods in their life. Difficult times. Wondering if God's going to provide. You know who was with Jesus in His wilderness? Forty days. The Spirit of God was. He knows who's with you. When you're going through a time in the wilderness of your life, however it may last, long it may last, well, the Spirit of God is with you. The same Spirit that provided for Jesus is going to provide for you. The point of the Trinitarian promises and benefits and entitlements of what it means to know the Trinitarian God of Holy Scripture. Verse 14, And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about Him spread throughout all the surrounding districts. Well Jesus comes into Nazareth and he goes to the synagogue. Let's look at Luke chapter 4 verses 17 to 19. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him and he opened the book and he found the place where it was written. And what he's going to do is going to recite Isaiah chapter 61 verses 1 and 2. The largest portion of it anyway. Notice what the text says. And the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's identifying Himself as a Messianic King at that very point. That the King has come into the synagogue. Because He anointed me to preach the Gospel to the poor, He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set free those who are downtrodden to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. What I'm suggesting to you. No, it's more powerful than that. Luke is saying that what Isaiah is prophesying of in Isaiah chapter 61 is fulfilled in Christ on this very day when he goes into the synagogue and he applies this text to himself. That he is the jubilee. He is the liberty. He is the preacher of the gospel. In fact, Messiah is the gospel. It's interesting to me in this citation that Jesus does not cite the reference in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 2, in the day of vengeance of our God. He stops at the first part of verse 2. Setting the stage in my own mind that He is suspending temporarily the final judgment. What a great promise of the Gospel. That the king comes to his creation and promises the good news and temporarily suspends the execution of the vengeance of God. Meaning that there is, if you're not a Christian, there's time for you to come to the knowledge of Christ, to come to full liberty, to be set free, to claim the land promises of eternity. To know true liberty from the effects of the fall. To believe upon Christ and you get all of these things, in my own mind, the greatest benefits and entitlements of all time in one person because of who he is. And he will never have a shortfall. I'm so amused every time I read this concept of entitlements that our politicians have written promises that they cannot pay. How they are going to pay for it? I don't have a clue. But I know that Jesus can pay. He will pay. He'll pay it all in a staggering sum that none of us can ever fully imagine. All of eternity will have liberty and freedom and the joys of eternity. The point of the Gospel, if you're not a Christian, he has suspended upon you the sword of Damocles and judgment and revenge. And by the way, he will, he will execute that on the day of his own choosing and the day of his own coming. But today is a day in which there is still the promise of the gospel. But notice coming back to Luke chapter 4, something more decisive happens. He interprets Isaiah chapter 4 verses 20 and 21. And he closed the book. And he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, "Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It means that the end-time promises of the restoration have begun in Jesus. Because that's exactly what this prophecy is in Isaiah chapter 61. And he tells the congregation, the synagogue, it's been fulfilled in your hearing. Closes the book. That this great promise of what the evangelist going to do, Messiah and His mission stops with Jesus, sits down, closes the book, and says, I'm the one who's going to fulfill all of this. Incredible. Meaning for us that this mission statement, He's going to affect. He is Messiah. That the end-time kingdom has begun in Jesus. Jesus. including the end-time exodus and new creation. To me, the inauguration of the promise is unmistakable. I think of all the things that get me in trouble with people. Augustinian Calvinism is one, but certainly the second is inauguration of end-time prophecies. I don't know how else you can deal with this text. Jesus interprets Isaiah 61, verses 1, the first part of verse 2. Today, this Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The kingdom has begun in Christ. Meaning, of course, that all of these messianic mission statements accrue to us in light of His work. That He's going to set us free. He's going to affect the end-time jubilee. He's going to give us true liberty. All of our broken hearts He's going to fix. Man, what a great promise for an age In incredible hurt, Christ can fix uh, what ten thousand drug companies can't. I mean, it's the same in Mark chapter one. And again, if you struggle over this, simply look at the words of Luke. Today, it's been fulfilled—fulfillment in Christ. The inauguration of the end-time restoration has begun in Jesus' Mark chapter 1 in verses 14 and 15. And after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God, evangelizing, and He's the evangel. And saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Notice again, suspension, a delay of the end-time revenge of God. you're not a Christian, there's time. Today is the day of salvation. You know who Christ is, King Messiah. You know what He's going to do. He promises the greatest benefits, entitlements of all time. They will extend into eternity. And because of who He is, He can pay all of the promises that He makes. Uh, The biblical theologian uh, G.K. Beale sees the signs of healing as an inauguration event foreshadowing complete healing. Again, if you recall, the Greek translation of the Old Testament uh, adds the phrase, uh, open the eyes of the blind. Foreshadowing that Christ will heal every broken body in eternity. We're going to be healed. We can see this in John's question to Jesus, uh, Luke chapter 7. It's a great reminder again that fulfillment Uh, has begun uh, because of what Christ is able to affect. Restoration promises, promises of healing. Luke chapter 7, verses 20 to 22. You know, by the way, just simply using the great dictum of the Protestant Reformation, Scripture interprets Scripture. When I say these promises have been inaugurated, I'm not saying that the Scripture is. The Scriptures use the word fulfillment. The time is now. The time has begun. Luke chapter 7, verses 20-22. to And when the men had come to Him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is coming, or do we look for someone else? At that very time, He cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits, and He granted sight to many who were blind. And He answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up. The poor have the gospel preached to them. So the signs of healing are an inauguration, foreshadowing total, complete healing in eternity. You know, like all of our benefits in America, and again, I'm not against them. little bit of a problem politicians making promises they can't pay for, but I understand they need to get elected next year, Next year, but Christ needs none of that. It doesn't need to be elected. He's already king. He doesn't depend upon men to keep him in office, and all the promises he makes, uh, he can write the checks, and they will never bounce uh, because he's king messiah. Uh, but one of the greatest things we're struggling in our country today is health care. Man, can we have enough? Uh, Politicians are now promising for universal health care. Wonderful thing. I don't know how they're going to pay for it. I don't think they care. They'll just put it on a future generation. Christ, King Messiah, doesn't have to mess with any of that. Whatever he promises, he can make good on. And what does he promise? Total, complete health care. In the foreshadowing events of his earthly ministry, he cures the blind. He cures every disease. He casts out evil spirits. Again, a reminder to us that the end-time restoration uh, starts and begins with him. It's a radical announcement that the end-time creation has begun. Some of you, I'm sure, are struggling with health issues in your family. Uh, Maybe you're struggling with them. You know what? The bad news is it's only going to get worse. The good news is when you know Christ, He'll fix it all. He will deliver totally in making us over. Again, if you're not a Christian, come to the Savior. The benefits, entitlements are overwhelming. So Jesus again is once again saying that the fulfillment of Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, first part of verse 2 has started in him, and that he's affecting the mission in his earthly ministry. Uh, presently the event I think is more powerfully spiritual, uh, dealing first and foremost with sin. However, however, sin affects everything. All the miseries of this life are linked to sin. Therefore, Jesus has set in motion a total reversal of the fall, and this includes every sickness, every sadness, every predicament imaginable. His mission is to recover all and fix all. He is the answer to every dark question in your life. He will restore everything and all who are His. in terms of applications, the hope of of what it means to be a Christian. That when he writes a check, he's going to deliver. Of course, in Nazareth, as you know from Luke 4, they don't believe in him, but this is not to be interpreted as a suspension of his kingdom. It only documents that they are living consistently with the unbelief of the nation in the days of Isaiah. But nonetheless, Christ is going to emancipate all who belong to Him. And He will win. Messiah cannot fail. He cannot be defeated. He cannot be frustrated. He doesn't put anything on hold. He's fulfilling the promises of God, the prophet Isaiah, that Christ will carry the day, and He sets full recovery in motion. John chapter 10, verse 27. My sheep hear My voice, I know them, and they follow Me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. John chapter 12, verse 32. And if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to Myself. He's plundering the satanic kingdom, drawing all who are His to Himself, and they cannot be stopped. All of the ravages of the kingdom of uh, the devil uh, cannot prevent them from coming. Family can't prevent them from coming. Governments cannot prevent them from coming because when he's lifted up upon the cross in his resurrection, his sons are going to come in light of simply the power of his personal presence and gathering all who belong to him uh, to himself. Well, this text, as you know, has a number of benefits uh, that are present. Good news of the gospel. He binds up the brokenhearted. He proclaims liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. Proclaims the year of jubilee. Liberty, true liberty in Christ. Uh, I think the third verse of the prophet Isaiah uh, catapults us into the future uh, so that there are future benefits that we haven't uh, fully come to realize yet. Uh, But uh, the text is a reminder that the best is yet to come. Because Messiah, in verse 3, will fix the future. Uh, no man can do that. I don't care what your mayor, your senator, or your congressman, or your congresswomen can promise, what the president, the prime minister, the dictator, they can promise all they want. They do not control the future. God does. Christ is God. He's king. Uh, he controls the future. And what he's going to do in the future is rain benefits and entitlements upon his sons. Uh, The first, he will comfort all who mourn and give them a garland, the oil of gladness, and a mantle of praise. Greek translation reads, the garments, I love this translation, the garments of glory he will clothe his sons with. The change in raiment is befitting of their restoration. uh, Reminds me of Psalm 23, 5. You Unoint me with oil. My cup runs over. In the Scriptures, a change in clothing is reflective of a change in status. We were once slaves. Even as we pilgrimage in this world, we suffer the effects of the fall. But in eternity, we'll be totally free, healed, and come into our inheritance as sons future benefits will accrue to us.
0: Uh,
1: And the result is proclaimed to us in the latter part of verse 3. They will be called the oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. Oaks of righteousness is a very interesting phrase uh, because the irony of idolatry that got Israel in trouble Let's look at this phrase in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 29 and 30. Surely you will be ashamed of the oaks which you have desired. In other words, God has a garden, but men say, well, Lord, you've got your garden, but we've got ours. We're going to go up on the hilltops among the oaks, and we're going to, we're going to find righteousness there, and... and, and and we're going to worship the the rocks and the stones and the statues. And uh, boy, how we're going to benefit. Yeah, they really did. The benefit was the Babylonian captivity. But it's interesting this very phrase, the oaks which you have desired. God sets eternity in motion, but they want something else. Great promise that everything we touch, we muck up, and only God can fix. And you will be embarrassed, Isaiah says, at the gardens which you have chosen. I, mean, I know so many people say, well, I don't need Christ. I, I don't need religion. Uh, maybe when I'm old and everything is breaking, I'll, I'll get religion. My friend, you don't understand. You're choosing a garden that you desire that's contrary to the way and the will of God and that will not work. It will never work. Isaiah chapter 57, and verse 5. Who inflame yourselves among the oaks. In the promise of Isaiah 61, verse 3 is the oaks of righteousness, but they're going up upon the mountaintops among the oaks, among the trees, and worshiping false gods, inflaming themselves uh, under every luxuriant tree, who slaughter the children in the ravines, or the clefts of the crags. So I think what the prophecy in Isaiah 61 in verse 3, is confirming for us uh, is that the transformation of our lives uh, presently and, of course, radically in eternity includes a total, total cleansing and effacement from all idolatry. That God will totally fix everything and cure our hearts forever. You see, one of the problems we have in our own culture and even as Christians is we are... In the words of John Calvin, our our hearts and souls are idol factories. In eternity, God's going to fix that. He's going to fix the heart. Fix the soul. Remind us that uh, uh, idolatry never works. Will never work. That He's the one true God. In other words, the transformation includes cleansing. And this is exactly what Isaiah has been promising Uh, throughout this section of the book. Uh, Chapter 44, verses 3 and 4. And I'll pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I'll pour out My Spirit on your offspring and My blessing on your descendants. And they will spring up among the grass like poplars by the streams of water. Great reminder that even in this present life, uh, this is a prophetic reality. Uh, Psalm Psalm 1 verse 3, the righteous man will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water and his leaf will not fade and whatever he does, he will prosper. The righteous man, the oaks of righteousness, uh, the man of God, uh, beginning even in his present life uh, to be something of a manifestation of the end time garden promised by God in the fullness of the end time creation. That this garden metaphor is often used in Isaiah representing the new creation. The parallel uh, in Isaiah 61 is the planting of the Lord. Planting of the Lord. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 8. What did the Lord do? The Lord planted a garden. And Adam and Eve mucked it up. Terribly so. God starts over in Messiah. That this great end-time creation, this metaphor of the garden, starts with Him. The planting of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 16, verse 21. Then all your people will be righteous. They will possess the land forever. The branch of my planting. That God's going to affect it. This is the absolute vacuousness and emptiness of all religion. Save the Christian faith. Only God can do this. Only God can plant it and affect it true restoration. Everything else is a sham. Everything else is a counterfeit. I know in our country we are eaten up with the moral sentiment that uh, every religion is equal. Well, not in the Christian faith. Only God can make it happen. He will plant the garden. And notice what Isaiah says at the end, verse 3, that he may be glorified. He does it all. No one can say, well, I did my part. It's like when I go out to do gardening in my yard. Not very often, I remind you. I I mess everything up. My wife has to go back and repair it all. She can say the yard is mine. It's a lot more beautiful when she's in it, of course. But there's none of that with God. He plants. He cultivates. He weeds. He waters. And our leaf does not wither. And in everything we do, we prosper. And in the end time, full reality of this, we will be the oaks of righteousness in the garden of the great God of heaven. Again, the purpose is to glorify Him and Him alone. No one can say, well, I did 20% of it. I had my part. God, You did yours and I did mine. That's religion. The Christian faith is God provides. King Messiah is the answer. He's the only answer. and He will fix everything that has been ruined by the first Adam. It starts and ends with him if you're not a Christian my friend. It starts and ends with the last Adam, King Messiah, the Lord Christ. That he finishes what he starts. I love Philippians chapter 3 verse 21, who transformed the body of our humble estate into conformity of the body of his glory according to the power of him who is able to exert his will upon all things. It's a garden of glory. The point of the garden, of course, is not that we're going to walk around and say, man, what pretty flowers are those? I wish I'd have had those in Oklahoma. It's the point of the end time fullness of the communion with the Lord God Almighty that will be unbroken forever. It's not just a garden. The point of Adam and Eve is that they were in full communion with God, and they broke it, and God will restore it. And because it will be so majestic, our bodies have to be glorified. Other other than that, our flesh could not be able to live in such an environment. So he equips us with glory because he is glory. And the fullness of the communion and end time satisfaction and joy will envelop us in a majesty that we cannot even fully understand in the present life. Return to fellowship power of God. Well, I don't know about you, but if this is indeed a prophecy of benefits and entitlements, and I think it is, then it transcends and eclipses our quest for benefits and entitlements in our culture that will all fail. But Christ will deliver because of who he is. And he cannot fail because of who he is. And he will effect total and irreversible restoration. Again, if you're not a Christian, your, your journey stops here with the Messiah. Who he is and what he does, his mission statement. We have many of the benefits now in spiritual restoration. We're going to have the promise of more to come in everlasting glory. That is who we serve at Grace Bible Church. Messiah. Jesus. Now we know why we serve him, because of all that he does for us. In these seven infinitives. And we know from Luke and the encounter in the synagogue that the work has started and we're participating now, and because of His grace, we'll get it all in the future that every check He writes, uh, He will deliver on. I trust uh, the joy of the Scriptures will transcend your life and uh, bind your heart more and more uh, to Him, and rightfully so, because of who He is and what He does for us as our Savior.